On this episode, Robert C. O'Brien, the former National Security Advisor. When I interviewed for for the job with uh, President Trump, I uh, told him, look, I think you, you had uh, folks here that, that felt it was their job to, to tell you how the world works, to tell you how, what your policy should be. Uh, I think you've got a very well-developed uh, sense of where you want to go and where you want to take the country. And uh, and my job is to, is to make sure it gets implemented. I'm David M. Drucker with The Washington Examiner, and welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 a ricochet podcast and a companion to my book, just out from 12 books, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. I've covered O'Brien for quite some time, but really got to know him in 2016 when he served as a foreign policy advisor to Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker during his presidential bid. But since then, quite a few more Americans have gotten to know O'Brien through his tenure as Donald Trump's fourth and final national security advisor in the White House. He's even mentioned as a possible 2024 contender. Other than the fact that they're both Republicans, Trump and O'Brien could not be more different. The former president is, well, he's the former president. And O'Brien is a polite and soft-spoken and really a wonky foreign policy practitioner. But for whatever reason, and I tried to get to the heart of this, O'Brien worked extremely well with Trump and was arguably his most effective national security advisor. A judgment I make because he never lost the confidence of the president, as did his three predecessors. Foreign policy is a hobby horse of mine. And when you have a podcast, you get to explore some of your hobby horses. And so when I met with O'Brien recently, it didn't bother me at all that our discussion ended up a very in-depth conversation on various aspects of American foreign policy as it relates to Trump, the Republican Party, and President Joe Biden, with me trying to pull out as much candid information out of O'Brien as I could. I had varying degrees of success. One program note, this is the final episode of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 for 2021. And I want to thank everyone for joining me the past few months with a special shout-out to Ricochet for hosting and producing the podcast. But I'll be returning next month with a fresh slate of interviews and insights as we continue to explore a Republican Party that, and forgive me for this, continues to exist in Trump's shadow. And now, Robert C. O'Brien. Thanks so much for joining me on In Trump's Shadow. Great. Well, thanks, David. Wonderful to be with you. Uh, Listen, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. I cover campaigns for a living. I love campaigns, but foreign policy is like a hobby horse of mine. And that's been unfortunate for you because this was before you were in the White House. But every time there was some campaign related foreign policy issue, of course, I dial you up and hope I got lucky. Um, Before I get into some some of of the areas of your expertise, I just wanted to ask you, and I've asked a lot of people that have worked for the former president, I've asked them this on this podcast because I think it fascinates so many people. What was it like to work for Donald Trump in the White House? I think you were his fourth out of four national security advisors. He is a notoriously difficult man to work for. He told me as much in in one of the interviews I conducted with him. Um, What was it like for you to work for him? 
Well, there was a tremendous amount of energy uh, with the president and uh, with his administration. As you know, David, I started out uh, the first year and a half of my service in the Trump administration was as a special presidential envoy for hostage affairs. And so I worked with the president on, on bringing Americans who are wrongfully detained or held hostage overseas back. And and that's where I really got to know him. I, I did not know the president. Uh, I mean, I met him once, once at a debate in the uh, the 16 campaign when I was with another candidate. And uh, and I got to know him through the hostage work. And what impressed me is his commitment to uh, the United States. And, and you know, when, when people ask me what American first foreign policy means to me or what, what how, how do you define it, I, I think about the times as a hostage envoy where the president just was personally offended that any, anyone was taken hostage or held in prison overseas because of their nationality, because they were an American citizen. And, and that, that irritated the heck out of him. And he wanted us to do everything we could to get him home. And so I started developing the relationship there. I saw how, how passionate he was about the hostages and then went on to become the national security advisor. And, and look, I, you know, I, I, I've heard the same things that, that you have about uh, the president's uh, you know, he's a tough guy and, and, and you know, he's gone through a number of uh, employees uh, and staffers over the years. My, my experience was maybe a little different than a lot of those. I had a very cordial professional relationship with the president uh, the entire time I worked with him, uh, both as an ambassador and as the national security advisor. Uh, I, you know, I'm not sure what contributed to that. I, I tried to get great results for him and, uh, and I tried to make sure that uh, everyone understood that, that whatever successes we had were the successes of the president, the administration and not, and not mine. And, yeah, that may have contributed to it, but we had a, a very professional and very cordial working relationship, and uh, he treated me well from the day I started uh, working there to, to my last day in office. Uh, so, so my, my my experience may have been a little different than some of the other the other folks uh, with whom you've uh, spoken. All right, so let me. I understand where you're coming from there, and and maybe there's no secret sauce. Um, do you think maybe one of the reasons you were able to last in the White House? in the role of national security advisor and why the two of you got along professionally was that you approached your role as a, in a sense, a managerial and adv an advice role versus the role of a policymaker. I think some of these larger, larger figures that sometimes end up as national security advisor fashion themselves policymakers, and maybe that can clash with any president, but particularly with this president. Um, he always understood his role to be the role of the ultimate decision maker, and maybe that's why it worked. Well, uh, I think it's important, David, for, for anyone who staffs the president to understand, and whether you're the National Security Advisor, the Chief of Staff, or, or uh, Na National Economic Council uh, Director, uh, th those are very important roles. I mean, they come with Secret Service. They come with a uh, big staff. They come with uh, a lot of input into the policy process. But at the end of the day, you're staffing the president of the United States. And, and the president of the United States is a person who's elected. And, and uh, so this isn't just for President Trump. This is for President Biden. It was for, true for uh, President Bush, uh, for whom I, whom I worked, uh, President Biden, uh, or excuse me, President Obama. You know, the, the, the president's elected by the American people. The staff isn't. And uh, when I interviewed for for the job with uh, President Trump, I uh, told him, "Look, I think you you had uh, folks here that that felt it was their job to to tell you how the world works, to tell you how what your policy should be. Uh, I think you've got a very well developed uh, sense of where you want to go and where you want to take the country. And uh, and my job is to is to make sure it gets implemented. Now, having said that, 
you know, you're, you're not going to be a very good uh, or successful national security advisor if you're not getting the president all the information he needs and, uh, and, and giving him your honest and unvarnished opinion. But I, I always tried to make sure that I was the last person to voice the, the opinion. I'd wait for the president to ask for my opinion after he heard from his cabinet secretaries and from the, uh, the folks who are running the departments who were on the front lines of our national security and foreign policy. And then if uh, the president turned to me or, you know, oftentimes it would be in private after he heard from the principals and asked for my opinion, I would, uh, I'd give him my candid opinion. And, uh, you know, oftentimes it was something he agreed with. Sometimes it was, he, he disagreed with my, my views on a, on a topic, but uh, he got my honest opinion. But one, once the president made a decision, it was our job, uh, you know, both both myself as national security advisor, but the cabinet secretaries to make sure that his decisions were implemented and that uh, the policy that that the the elected leader of the of the American people and the free world was, uh, you know, wanted uh, implemented uh, got done. And so, I, I think that may have been a, a little difference between myself and some of my predecessors. But again, I, I wasn't there when uh, when John or HR or Mike were uh, were sitting in the seat. Can you share any of the disagreements you had with him now that you are a private citizen and entitled no, to your own opinion? I, no, I uh, uh, thank you, but I've, I've always uh, made it a, a a habit not to not to discuss my uh, my conversations with the president, or uh, or especially in a case like that where where I gave uh, gave the president advice. I, that was something he was entitled to to hear from me as a president, and 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 he he's got that privilege. He could discuss it at some point if he wants to, but that's not mine to share. Fair enough. I always have to give it the old college try. Um, now I'll just sort of ask the same question, but in, in a different way. But maybe you can help really explain the president's policy here. It, over the last several months, I've talked to a number of Republicans who have given me different views of what the president's Afghanistan strategy was vis-a-vis a pullout. I'm talking about uh, President Trump. So we know that President Trump wanted to withdraw all U.S. forces from Afghanistan. We know that he negotiated a deal with the Taliban to withdraw all U.S. forces from Afghanistan. Jump in. Anytime I get something wrong, please jump in. And I, I even recall um, in the initial weeks or month or so after uh, he left office, Trump was critical of his of his successor, President Biden, saying that I would have had us out of Afghanistan. He'll never pull out. Now, we know what happened since. We know that the current president pulled all of the American military forces out of Afghanistan. We know that it was chaotic, and um, and that's a kind way of putting it. We know Americans were left behind. American allies were left behind. You saw it as well as I did. The Where I've been getting different views of the former president's policy is whether or not there were plans to leave some contingent military force to deal with the terrorist threat and all that goes along with that in country after we had basically otherwise pulled out under president trump's pullout strategy were we leaving anybody in or were we not well it's a great question david i think if you look at where we were on january 20th uh, we left 2500 american troops uh, in, in afghanistan and that, that number was not a, a random number. That was a number that was derived based on what we needed to defend our embassy uh, and, and defend our, our operations uh, in Kabul, but also to maintain security for our counterterrorism operation, which was, was run by another government agency. And, and so that, that, that number was, uh, uh, was a, a number that was solid. It was there for protection and counterterrorism. 
And I believed, and I think the president believed at the time, uh, that that number was uh, was also consistent with his pledge to the American people to end end the endless wars and to, and to wind things down in Afghanistan. Now, what was also important about that number and, and doesn't get spoken about is that it also encompassed 5,000 NATO troops over and above the 2,500 U.S. troops. So we had 7,500 uh, NATO uh, troops, 2,500 of ours, and 5,000 European and and, uh, and and Turkish troops that were in uh, a- Afghanistan. That was something the president insisted on. I, I did those negotiations with uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, to make sure that, that NATO was burden sharing with us in Afghanistan. And that was something that was important to the president. It was important to our administration. It wasn't just that NATO paid their 2%, that the countries in NATO paid their 2% uh, GDP towards defense. Uh, it wasn't just that they contributed more to, uh, uh, to operations around the world, but, but that they, they rolled up their sleeves in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so for the first time in history, we had twice as many NATO troops in Afghanistan on January 20th as we did American troops. So I think the president had, had done two things. He, he basically fulfilled his promise to the American people that we'd, we'd be done with Afghanistan. Uh, and we had a residual force there that was, that was there really more of a, to, to protect our uh, ability to conduct uh, some CT operations and, and conduct diplomacy. And, and we also had a large European contingent there with the NATO allies. So, so I, I think that's where we were. Uh, now, the withdrawal was always condition-based. And the conditions, some of the conditions included good faith negotiations between the Taliban and the, uh, the then government of Afghanistan, uh, President Ghani's government. Uh, you know, so, so those were going to have to go, go forward. Uh, no attacks on Americans. Unfortunately, after the 20th, there was, attack, there was an attack on at least one of our forward operating bases in which Americans were wounded. I think eight Americans were wounded. So, so any withdrawal was going to be condition-based. Uh, the last thing is the last place we would have withdrawn, withdrawn from uh, in Afghanistan, if there had been a withdrawal, was Bagram. The president was very, the president visited Bagram. I'd visited the, the base with him uh, on in Thanksgiving 2019. We went to, to feed the troops in a, a kind of a clandestine operation to get the president into Afghanistan to see our men and women in, in uniform and, and bring them some uh, holiday cheer. And we'd put a lot of money into to Bagram. It was a strategic area. Uh, you know, very clear fields of fire, uh, a place where we could get a lot of uh, uh, planes in and out of uh, safely and, and didn't have some of the, the it wasn't as problematic uh, for an evacuation or, or other operations as you would have had in the, the downtown airport in, in Kabul at the Hamid Karzai International Airport, another place I've been to on a number of occasions. Uh, it's right in the middle of the city, kind of like DCA or, or Burbank in, in Los Angeles. Uh, not Not very big perimeters. So uh, you know, we, you know, we, we felt that we had a, uh, that we both fulfilled the promise to the American people and, uh, and we're also protecting our folks and, and we were, we were following a conditions-based withdrawal. But is it your view that had president Trump been reelected that we would have indefinitely had a counterterrorism force stationed in Afghanistan and likely at Bagram indefinitely? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if it would have been indefinitely, but I think they would have, they would have been there for some time, some period of time until the uh, the terrorist threat from Al-Qaeda and, and ISIS-K was eliminated. And by the which, way, I think- Which I, which is probably going to be almost never though, correct? I mean- Well, look, I, I, I think that there was real uh, potentiality uh, in, a, in a transition government where there was, that included both the old government and, and the, the Taliban that we would have been asked to stay by the government of Afghanistan 
or the transitional government of Afghanistan to help uh, fight ISIS-K and, uh, and to deal with the, uh, the al-Qaeda remnant that was there. So, you know, I, I don't like to use the term indefinite, but, uh, but I think there, for, for, for some period of time, U.S. troops would have been there conducting counterterrorism operations uh, in a second Trump term. But let me tell you the other thing that, that uh, the president stressed over and over again. Had we evacuated, had we determined that it was time to get out, uh, the, the president made it very clear that, number one, the first folks that leave are not the military. The first folks that you take out are the American citizens. Then you take the Afghan allies, the enablers, the interpreters, the special forces, the, the pilots uh, who are most at risk. And then the last thing is you take the equipment out. And the president went over this time and time and time again. The idea that, that, uh, that the Taliban would be driving around in American Humvees, MRAPs, uh, uh, tanks. Well, I, I don't think we left any Abrams behind, but uh, you know, armored vehicles uh, that they would have access to uh, Scan Eagle drones. That they'd have, uh, you know, a helicopter fleet uh, bigger than than that owned by us to the Australian military. Uh, that they'd have access to to close air support uh, uh, fighters, uh, fixed wing, uh, uh, you know, propeller driven uh, uh, fighters that they got access to. Uh, None of that would have been left behind. All the planes, all the helicopters, all the equipment would have been uh, egressed out of through, through either Pakistan or, 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 or some other manner. And, and so only then would the military have withdrawn. And, and the way that things unfolded, unfortunately, you know, that didn't happen. The, the equipment was left behind. Americans were left behind. Our allies were left behind. Uh, the military was taken out first at one point. Uh, there was not a plan uh, to use Bagram as a as a backup evacuation point. Uh, so, so even had we decided to leave, uh, you know, the, the president had made it very clear the order in which we'd leave, and that was civilian, American civilians and, and American personnel, diplomatic personnel, allies, our equipment, and only then would the Army and uh, Marine Corps and, 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 and Air Force have, have exited Afghanistan. Okay, let me uh, switch gears a little bit, and it's only, I, I, could, I could talk about this forever because I find it fascinating, but you know, one of the things I explore in, in Trump's shadow in my book is is the impact that Donald Trump had on the Republican Party, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, I really feel like it was a generational break with the Reagan era of Republican politics. And one of the areas in which I, f- I feel like the, 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 the former president um, changed at least an element of the discussion inside the party was on matters of foreign policy. Um, he seems much more hesitant uh, to use military force abroad than past Republican presidents, uh, much less willing to project American power uh, abroad uh, or use military as a tool to project power abroad. He's much more skeptical of overseas military deployments. He questioned our deployments to South Korea and Japan, in addition to Afghanistan and Europe. Um, Is and he adopted a term that I had only previously heard used by Democrats, or at least Barack Obama, and that is the term endless war. Um, I wanted to ask you, in, in your view, did he did he sort of change what it means to be a Republican when it comes to matters of foreign policy broadly in being a less hawkish party and a party that's that's more skeptical of 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 using the military uh, overseas? Um, to to protect and not to protect, but but as a matter of national security policy versus diplomacy. 
Yeah, so that's a great question. There's a lot to unpack there. And, and, and let me comment. You mentioned your book. It's a terrific book. I've had a chance to read it uh, and recommend uh, to the listeners to, to go out and buy uh, uh, David's book. He's a, he's a keen observer, especially of, of politics, especially on the GOP side, and, and has great access. And so, I, you know, look, I, I, I learned things reading your book uh, and, and uh, even about you know, colleagues and uh, myself. So, so thank you for, for writing it. And, and I you know, encourage you, the listeners to go out and, and buy a copy. Uh, Look, I, I think that there was a break with Republican foreign policy, but I think it was a, more of a break with the what I'd call the Bush Republican policy. I, I think it was really a restoration of the Reagan policy. And, and this is something I've spent a lot of time with my close friend, Pete Wilson, our former governor in California, who's a, a Reaganite and uh, was very close to uh, uh, to President Reagan. And, and, and he has the same view I do, and that is that th- this was really a return to uh, a peace through strength policy. This was about rebuilding the military. Uh, it was about staying out of, uh, u- not, not using American forces for direct intervention. Uh, so, so President Trump is the first president since Reagan who didn't start a new war. Uh, now, President Reagan was not shy to use the American military. And you know, some people would, would refer to Grenada as a war. I kind of look at Grenada as, a, as actually a uh, a very large hostage rescue operation to get the medical students out and to uh, uh, to restore the government there. And we got in and, in and out of Grenada very quickly. It wasn't a nation building uh, campaign. It's not somewhere we stayed. Uh, but President Reagan didn't hesitate to shoot down Libyan aircraft that approached uh, the uh, American carrier battle groups in the Gulf of Sidra. Uh, he didn't hesitate to uh, uh, employ American uh, advisors in places like uh, Mozambique and Angola and uh, in the shadow wars in Nicaragua and, and, and El Salvador. Uh, to deny those spaces to, to the communists and to, to help uh, uh, bolster liberation, uh, uh, you know, uh, democratic uh, Western-aligned uh, liberation movements. So, so I think President Reagan had a very robust foreign policy, but he was very reticent to commit to uh, uh, you know large-scale uh, wars. That that that's something that changed with the Bushes, and and I you know I served in the second Bush administration and and. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, you know, think think extraordinarily highly of, of George W. Bush, but a very different foreign policy uh, w- was pursued by Reagan and by uh, by Trump. Their, their view was build a military that's so big that it and 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 so effective and so capable uh, that our adversaries, uh, you know, will, will will be deterred from from uh, harming U.S. interests and harming Americans overseas. And one of the reasons we had to draw down from Afghanistan is because we watched the Chinese uh, every month launching two or three new frigates. They now have the largest Navy in the world. Uh, those frigates cost about a billion a pop. Well, we were, we were putting $3 billion every month into Afghanistan uh, in, in, a, in a, what was obviously, in hindsight, a failed nation-building effort. It wasn't that it wasn't noble. It wasn't that the cause of democracy and human rights and women's rights aren't important. And I, I worked on Afghanistan in the Bush administration, as you know. But but. Ultimately, our you know China is an existential threat to the country, and and while we were pouring money into Afghanistan, uh, you know much of it was was being dissipated through corruption from the, the the government of Afghanistan. You know the Chinese were were pouring the money into their shipyards, and we had to we had to change that dynamic. and uh, And I and I think that's very much in line with the Ronald Reagan peace or strength foreign policy of rebuilding the American military, and and that military being. Uh, g- giving the the uh, the backing to our diplomats to go out and protect our interests around the world. We, we spent 50 years in a Cold War, and as far as I could tell, we had no intention of backing down if it had gone another 50. And I don't think many people thought, at least not when I was a kid, 
because I saw all this unfold that the Soviet Union, by the time I was an adult, would cease to, to be a, a, a country. Um, I mean, don't shouldn't the United States fight a war until it's won? Um, obviously, it can conclude that a war that we are fighting is no longer in our interest, that by ceasing to fight, maybe we haven't lost because we need to redirect, as you just stated, you know, the, sort of the Afghanistan to, to China uh, analogy. But I, I'm trying to I've been trying to understand where this war comes from, because nobody wants to I can't think of anybody that wants to fight an endless war. But I can think that some people think a war that, that think war is sometimes necessary. And some people obviously have the view that it's never necessary. Well, look, I think the important thing is, is we, we've got to decide what our, our national interests are and, and what, uh, where we deploy our, our, our blood of our, of our soldiers, uh, our treasure, uh, our national uh, uh, prestige. Where is that important to, to protect the, the, the essential interests of the United States of America? And certainly during the Cold War, um, maintaining the alliance with Europe and, uh, and, and maintaining the, the, the freedom of, of trade across the Atlantic was, was critical to the United States, the same with Japan and the Pacific. Uh, so, and deterring the Soviet Union from, from uh, uh, invading countries in the free world uh, uh, it w- was, it was a critical mission. Now, I, I contrast that with you know, wars in, in Afghanistan or Iraq, where, you know, what, what was our, our goal? If our goal was to depose Saddam Hussein in Iraq, you know, we, we could have done what, what the British used to call a punitive expedition, and we did. We could have gone in, taken out Iraq, uh, taken out the Iraqi leadership, taken out Saddam and, and Uday and Kusay, who were, you know, terrible individuals and committed terrible human rights uh, abuses, uh, accomplished that mission, uh, you know, re- restored the no-fly zones, t- removed the danger to our pilots that were being, uh, uh, by you know, the, the pilots who were being threatened by the uh, uh, Iraqi anti-aircraft weapons that were lighting up their planes, uh, ensured that there were no weapons of mass destruction available to that regime, and they got now. I mean, the idea that we would stay and, and, and make it a, a national interest of the United States to create uh, some sort of Jeffersonian democracy in Iraq, it doesn't mean that we don't support our allies or, or or uh, you know, in, in encourage uh, uh, human rights and that sort of thing in Af- Iraq or Afghanistan. But uh, you know, is that where we need to be pouring billions and billions of dollars and and, and spending countless you know American lives and seeing the the kids who are coming home maimed and wounded uh, because we want a girls' school in Kabul and and it's important to have girls' schools in Kabul. It was something I, you know, I worked very hard on on some of those initiatives. But uh, again, we have to decide. Is is that in the critical interest of the United States? I mean, we we, we take a look at Afghanistan. The initial invasion was successful. The Taliban was dislodged, and uh, and there, there was a uh, an opportunity for us to leave or to leave just limited forces in Afghanistan and let the Afghans uh, sort out their own future, which is ultimately what they're going to have to do now. Uh, and, and so we've just got to make a decision: Is it worth 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years uh, of pouring money into Afghanistan? Uh, while, while at the same time, the Chinese are taking that same money and, you know, making massive advances, advances in hypersonic weapons and, and building a f- what, what's going to be a 400 ship Navy compared to our 280 ships and, and developing space capabilities. Uh, you know, wh- wh- where does our interest lie? And, and, and I would argue, and I think President Trump would argue, and I think President Reagan, if he was still around, would argue, you know, that our interests lie in, in defending the United States and, and, our, and the free world. And doing what we can where we can, uh, 
you know, President Reagan supported the, the Contras in Nicaragua. He supported the Salvadorian government. He supported, supported Renamo and, uh, and Unida in Africa. You know, so he, he was actively involved in those conflicts, but not with massive uh, influxes of American troops into Latin America or Africa or other places that, that weren't central to our uh, national interest. Okay, let's talk China. Uh, I can't get out of a conversation with you without talking China. Did the Trump administration have a policy vis-a-vis what would happen if China decided to take Taiwan by force? You know, so that's something, we, you know, we didn't talk about that. I think the, the president made it very clear uh, to the, uh, the Communist Party of China, to President Xi, that, uh, uh, that, that Taiwan, that we took our, our obligations uh, uh, under the Friendship Act with Taiwan uh, very seriously, that uh, uh, we, we thought it would be, uh, uh, you know, very, very unstable for the region. Uh, for the Chinese to uh, to invade or try to change the status quo with Taiwan, and uh, there was always a lot of ambiguity, ambiguity as to whether we would uh, engage militarily. Whether the and, and that wasn't just us; it was also the Japanese, the Australians. Uh, whether we would we would get in that fight, but the the idea with with Taiwan or, or any of these circumstances, Ukraine and in Europe, is to complicate the lives of the planners, uh, the Chinese who are, who are planning to to invade Taiwan, and if they if they had to. Uh, if they were concerned that we had the capability and the will, and we were rebuilding our capability and certainly demonstrating our will to defend uh, Taiwan, that was something that they would have to take take into account as as they planned uh, for their contingencies. And you, you wanted you wanted to complicate their lives as much as possible. And I think that's something we did. Okay, so I want to uh, follow up that question um, and use as a, a news peg, if you will. Uh, conversation our mutual friend and I, uh, our mutual friend Hugh Hewitt and I had this morning on on, on Hugh's radio show. Uh, he played me a clip of um, Defense Secretary Austin talking about his preference that it's it's not helpful for the U.S. to publish its red lines, but in other words, to make known its red lines. The Biden administration has been pretty ambiguous itself. Uh, regarding exactly what we would do if the Chinese made a move on Taiwan militarily. And some Republicans, and I think these Republicans have been very consistent throughout the Trump years and, the, and now the Biden administration. So I think they're, um, I don't think there's anything uh, political about this per se, um, believe that the U.S. should be more uh, definitive publicly in telling China exactly what would happen if they moved on Taiwan militarily. And, and, and it's their opinion that we should defend Taiwan militarily. Is, is there a difference between the ambiguity between the two administrations or just a difference in the presidents? Uh, so, so that, uh, again, that's an excellent question. Let me, let me just uh, uh, go, go back to the, the, the Biden administration. What's interesting is President Biden has now said twice that the U.S. would defend Taiwan in the event of an invasion. Uh, on both occasions, the White House has walked back uh, and clarified those comments. But but President Biden has has personally said twice, you know, in recorded statements, uh, you know, on TV that uh, the U.S. would defend uh, Taiwan. So I look, I, I think that's a strong statement coming from the president. Uh, now the fact that that Lloyd Austin and Blinken, Tony Secretary Blinken, and, and others have uh, have walked those those statements back. Uh, you know that the, the statements and the walk back 
themselves create some ambiguity. So I, I, I don't know if that is uh, that was by design uh, or, or if it's uh, if it's how the president feels. So, again, the fact that the president has made those statements is something that, that the Chinese have to take into account. Now, my, my feeling about the red lines or about uh, coming out and saying that we defend Taiwan, that we'll defend Taiwan, uh, in, in some ways, th- those sorts of comments are immaterial. What's far more important in my view, and, and you've covered me for, for a lot of years, David, and you, you know, I was writing about this back in 2008 and 2009, uh, when, we, when we saw the Chinese, and I, you know, I was, wasn't the only person, but was one of the early folks uh, talking about the uh, the increased capability of the PLA Navy, uh, uh, the PLA Rocket Forces, the Army, and, and what that would mean over time if we didn't uh, take it into account, if we didn't rebuild our own military, which suffered you know, greatly under the eight years of President Obama with defense sequestration and the, the massive cuts to uh, our hypersonic program, the massive cuts to our Navy. What, what's more important than, than our rhetoric is our capability. And if the, if, the, if the Communist Party of China and their military wing, the People's Liberation Army and People's Liberation Army Navy, if their generals and admirals and planners understand that we have the capability to thwart their uh, invasion or their plans on Taiwan, I, I think that's, that capability is more important than what we, we go out and say. I mean, we can beat our chest and, and make pro, you know, pronouncements about what we'll do or what we won't do. Uh, if we have a very strong Navy, if our, if our submarine force is where we need it to be, if we're, we're doing ship life extensions of our Los Angeles class subs, which we, we can do, and apparently the, the new administration is following through our, with our plans to do so, which is, I, I commend them on if that's, that's the case. Uh, if they see us building three or four Virginia class submarines uh, a year instead of two, uh, you know, th- th- that, that sends a stronger message than coming out and saying that Taiwan's a red line because you know, if, if the planners are coming into President Xi and saying, if the if the Americans have enough subs in the area and they deploy them and they decide to fight, we can't get across the strait. Uh, that that's more powerful than a politician saying we're going to defend Taiwan. Do we have the capability? I think we do now, uh, but okay. it's it's it would be a clo- it would be a close it'd be a close run thing. Okay, let me talk to you about. Um... We're, we're we're not where we were with. with remember when President Clinton uh, sent two carrier groups uh, to uh, uh, Taiwan yeah, into the Taiwan that. Straits uh, uh, a few years ago? Uh, we clearly had uh, 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 an overmatch situation at that time. Uh, that 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 dramatic overmatch situation was really really reduced. Our, our, our the, the 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 disparity was between the United States and China has been radically reduced by two things. One, by the, the massive Chinese military buildup, which we haven't seen since Kaiser Wilhelm built the, the Kriegsmarine uh, prior to World War I, trying to displace the Royal Navy as the, the leading maritime force in the world. Uh, so the Chinese have done some of it on their own. And then at the same time, we had the, the, the Obama, uh, this, was, this was a defense program, which was worse than the peace dividend that, uh, that we had under the Clintons, uh, and you had massive defense sequestration. So between our cuts and their buildup, uh, the disparity, the, the the overmatch position that we enjoyed has been been drastically reduced. So uh, we we need to get on it, or we're going to be in a situation very if we're not already in a situation very soon where we don't have the capability to stop an invasion of Taiwan. Okay, let me ask you about uh, Russia and Ukraine. Is ambiguity the best 
uh, strategy here that President Biden uh, could employ? Or should he be clear with Vladimir Putin that um, there will be severe consequences? And should he spell those out if he invades Ukraine? Yeah, I, I think in, in the case of Ukraine, we have to be very clear uh, with the Russians that uh, that we just won't tolerate the reabsorption of, of Ukraine, uh, a sovereign and, country. In, and what Russia. does that mean? We won't tolerate. What what should that mean? We won't tolerate. <clears throat> so 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 look, there's there's always some amb- ambiguity when it comes to military force or uh, or the use of, of NATO troops or U.S. troops. Of, of course, NATO or Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Um, and so a Russian invasion wouldn't necessarily trigger Article 5 obligations, uh, but we ought to have some doubt on the Russian side of, of what we'll do. Uh, certainly, we should let them know that we're going to support Ukraine if it's subject to a, a, an unlawful invasion, and, and it would be under the UN Charter. It would be a, um, a violation of, of clear violation of international law if Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, I think the Russians will, will bite off more than they can chew with Ukraine, especially when you get past the Donbass region and Donetsk and that area, and you get into Western Ukraine, which is very European uh, leaning and and looks to you know the Vienna and Warsaw for inspiration. It's a heavily Catholic population. Uh, the, the the Russians are going to have they, they may be able to prevail militarily, but they're going to have a long run insurgency uh, because the. the uh, a, a good portion of Ukraine is not going to give up its sovereignty and give up its freedom uh, and liberty to the Russians uh, uh, on a whim. That may be different with the Russian-speaking populations in, in eastern Ukraine that are more culturally uh, aligned with with the Russians. But I think even there, they'd still have problems. Uh, so, uh, but but as far as a uh, the, the Russians need to understand, if they attempt to uh, conquer uh, another country by force, which is is not been a norm in international law for. Uh, you know, uh, it's at least 100 years, but but certainly since uh, you know 120 years, but at least since the end of the Second World War, uh, that they would be cut off from banking, they'd be cut off from any commerce with the West, they'd be cut off from selling their oil to the West, they'd they'd, they'd be left with with China only as a uh, uh, as an ally and as a market, and and in that context, Vladimir Putin becomes a junior partner to uh, Chairman Xi Jinping, and uh, I, I don't think that's something Putin wants, but he has to understand that. Uh, you know, the, the, the oligarchs aren't going to be vacationing in Cyprus and, and Turkey and London and owning soccer teams and all that sort of thing, that, that, that all Russian commerce with the West is over. And, and that's a, you know, that, that, that's a very high price to pay for, for what he believes would be a buffer zone of Ukraine to, to give uh, uh, the Russians some more strategic depth. I mean, we're not going to have another World War II. The West is not going to invade Russia. He knows that. And, and so the idea that we have to, that the Russians have to have Ukraine you know, pro- provide some strategic depth to protect, you know, protect the homeland, uh, the Rodina, uh, is just not, it, 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 it's not an argument that holds water these days. And he needs to understand that if he does that, that there's a, there's a very, very significant price to pay. In other words, Russia's just cut off from the international finance system. Um, just one more question on this. Is, is Biden a problem in this regard, or is it, is it Europe? Because Europe is always hesitant to take these steps even American presidents where uh, Republicans understandably quibble with their military strategy, their willingness to spend on defense, um, have, have usually been reasonably tough on these matters. Not not always. Uh, President Biden wouldn't give lethal protection to Ukraine. President Trump would. But but do you think Biden is a problem in this regard or is it more uh, of the European governments? So, so there are two issues there. Uh, I, I don't think the Biden administration is is necessarily weak on Russia or on on Ukraine, but 
it's not whether the, the actual policy or, or, or in China, for that matter, on Taiwan, uh, it, it's the perception of weakness that can be provocative. So, so being perceived as weak and coming out of Afghanistan, coming, uh, w- watching the crisis at the southern border. I mean, look, watching things as that that we may look at as a domestic issue, the smash and grab robberies in California and and Illinois and Chicago and L.A., the the home invasions. I mean, these these are all things that that when outsiders, uh, foreigners are watching America between the border, between Afghanistan, between uh, brazen home invasions in, in our big cities, uh, th- these are things that, that cause America to look weak abroad. And when we, if, if that perception of us being weak, uh, you know, is, is the, is what the planners in the, in our adversary countries are, are uh, basing their moves on, that's as dangerous as actual weakness. So I, I you know, I, and I think that's something that the, the Biden administration needs to address. Uh, as far as the Europeans go, look, the Germans have been incredibly soft on, on the Russians, uh, Nord Stream Two is a is a disaster for Ukraine. It's it's bad for the German people. It's bad for Europeans. You know the Europeans are against Nord Stream Two. I mean, this is not a U.S. Europe issue. The you know it's it's one area where there's there's really a a, a, a strong public opinion. Even in Germany, the the average German person is against it. They don't want to they don't want to have their their home heating and their cars and and their livelihood dependent on Russian uh, oil and gas. But this was a German elite deal with Merkel and. Gerhard Schroeder, their former chancellor who works for Gazprom. Uh, and, uh, you know, so this, this was a bad deal. So the, the, the Europeans have been soft, but I think if there was a, if there was an actual invasion of, of Ukraine, uh, it would be very tough for the Germans to, uh, uh, to continue their, their, you know, kind of ooze politic, uh, you know, we'll buy commodities from, from Russia and then sell finished goods and cars to, to China and make a lot of money and let the U S you know, defend us otherwise. I, I think they, they'd have a hard time. I think Germany would have a hard time sustaining that sort of a policy. I've been very encouraged by the, the comments of President Macron in France. Uh, the president of the French Republic has been very tough on Ukraine and has taken a hard line. Uh, Prime Minister Johnson's taken a hard line in the UK. So, so I, I, I think on Ukraine, we probably would rally the Europeans, but, but there's no question about it. Uh, they, they have not been, uh, par- they, they've not been projecting a lot of strength on the Russia issue uh, over the past few years. So I, I think you're right on that, that the, the, the assumption underlying your question. By the way, to your point about how domestic politics plays overseas, I remember before he died, I interviewed George Schultz some years ago at the Hoover Institution, and he was telling telling me basically exactly that and referenced um, a story from his time in the Reagan administration when President Reagan had fired the air traffic controllers and how that played overseas um, and how important it was for our adversaries and our allies to see uh, resolve in presidents in domestic matters, not just in matters of foreign policy. Okay, this is in Trump shadow, which means almost nobody, if you were mentioned in my book in Trump shadow, the battle for 2024 and the future of the GOP, uh, if you were mentioned at all in that book, then I ask you something about 2024. We know Donald Trump may run again. He has said as much. Um, We know a number of people are looking at it. You have never told me anything about it, but I've had other people tell me that I should talk to you about whether or not you would consider running for president uh, in 2024. So you are here. Is it something you will consider or might consider, depending on the lay of the land, once we get past 2022? 
Well, look, I, I've been very flattered by uh, by folks who've raised that issue, and uh, it was nice of you to mention me in your book. Uh, so, so I don't have any current plans to run for president. Uh, I am spending a fair amount of time, as you know, with Kevin McCarthy, uh, uh, trying to make sure that the Republicans take back control of the House. And I, I, I've, been, I've been getting more involved in the Senate races as well. Uh, the Senate was a, is a pretty tough map for the GOP with retirements and uh, and the number of Republicans up uh, in, in, in the swing states uh, where the Democrats have some strong candidates like Arizona and Colorado and uh, uh, North Carolina. But I, I think the Senate's in place. I've made a number of endorsements in the Senate for Blake Masters and uh, 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 J.D. Vance and Carla Sands. Uh, uh, I'll be officially endorsing my uh, my friend, good friend uh, Mike Lee up in Utah, who's of course an incumbent, unlike the others who are challengers uh, in the next couple of days. So that's that's some news that's breaking on your on your podcast. <laughs> uh, not not that it's a not that it's a surprise. Folks know that Mike and I are close. I think he's a great senator, and we'll we'll make that clear to the the folks in Utah. Uh, so so that's my focus right now. I think we've got a lot of great uh, uh, potential candidates out there with uh, Senator Cotton and and. And, and Mike Pompeo and, and Ron DeSantis and uh, Nikki Haley and many, you know, numerous others, Ted Cruz, uh, the vice president may run, but I think it's all moot. And if the pre- if president Trump decides to run, uh, he'll be the nominee over, you know, overwhelmingly. I mean, the idea that a never Trump or like a Chris Christie or a, a Larry Hogan would somehow so- defeat uh, president Trump in a primary, I think is, 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 you know, fanciful thinking. So you're declaring uh, Chris Christie officially a never Trumper now? Well, he seems to be that way recently. He, he wasn't when we were in the White House. You see, he, he hung out at the White House a lot and spent a lot of time with the president. But he seems to have have changed his uh, his views these days. And and that, you know that's okay. He he kind of did the same thing with Governor Romney and uh, spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks of the campaign palling around with Barack Obama after the hurricane and and not 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 pushing governor romney's campaign so so i look i don't know what chris is going to do he's he's working you know, i know he's working to try and elect some republican governors and says he's interested in the race and uh but 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 the idea that someone who who opposed the president like a, a larry hogan or chris christie could could get in in this republican primary you know and, and and defeat the president i think is is highly highly unlikely so i think if president trump decides to run i don't think you'll have many of the other candidates get in the race and, uh, and I think he'll be the nominee. If, and if he doesn't run, I think you'll have a, a, a very robust field of candidates. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how that all plays out. Robert C. O'Brien, former National Security Advisor to the 45th President, Donald Trump. Thanks so much for joining me on In Trump's Shadow. Hey, great to be with you. Thank you, David. Brian Johnson is the producer of this episode of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024. My book, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP, is now available for purchase wherever books are sold. And every day, you can find my work online at www.washingtonexaminer.com. We'll see you next time. Ricochet. Join the conversation.